0: Every faithful Christian is a churchman. Every faithful Christian is a churchman or we could say a churchwoman or a church child. You cannot separate faith in Christ from membership in his body. To be a Christian is to belong to the church by definition. In any ordinary set of circumstances, any Christian is going to belong to the church. Sadly, some Christians, and this is an especially, especially an American phenomenon, although I think you could find it other places, uh, and it's especially a modern phenomenon. There are some Christians who treat the church as an accessory to the Christian life. The church might be helpful, but it's not essential. And they, and they might even say something like this. They might say, oh, well, you know, I listen to worship music on my Spotify account, and I listen to sermons on my podcast app, and so why do I need the church? Why do I need to be a member of a church? Why bother with the church? You saw the the Bronx this morning take membership vows. They took those membership vows publicly. Uh, Previously, they had already had a meeting with the elders where they took those vows in front of the elders of the church. Why do that? Why be so formal about it, so formal about church membership? You know, it's interesting, if you go back far enough in history, you can certainly get to a time where Christians did not take church membership vows. In pre-modern times, uh, travel was hard. Uh, there was likely only one church within a reasonable distance. And so if you were a Christian, that was your church. That's where you went to church, and everyone knew that, and everyone knew each other. And it was very easy to know who was part of this particular congregation. But in the era of denominationalism, and this is, again, something that is now certainly widespread, but it especially arose in America. In the era of denominationalism, where there are many churches all around us, just think of how many churches you drove past this morning to get to this church. In the era of denominationalism, it is important to be connected with a particular local congregation. This is something that a lot of American Christians don't think about very much. But church membership matters. There are a lot of ways to make that argument, but let me give you uh, a a few of them. Here's one argument that I think is very helpful to think about. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Scripture says, Obey those who rule over you, for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. The rulers here are obviously the shepherds, the elders of the church. And Hebrews says, obey your rulers, obey your elders in the church. If a professing believer doesn't want to join the church, one question I would ask to that person is, who are your elders? This verse tells us every Christian needs elders. And if he says, well, uh, I, I count the elders of this church as my elders, even though I haven't joined, then I would say, if the elders of this church commanded you to join, would you do it? Because Hebrews 13 says, obey your elders. But it's not just that every Christian needs elders to obey. It's also that elders need to know who they are responsible for, who they will be giving an account for. The elders of this church have to give an account for the souls of this church. And so they have to know who's in and who's out, who's a part of this body, who who is a part of this flock. The elders will give an account. I think that means that in some way, those who are elders in the church at Judgment Day will give an account for the church members who have been under their care, under their oversight. That's what it says in Hebrews 13. They will give an account. Church elders should track church members the way accountants track numbers. That's kind of the idea there. Uh, And they will answer for the members of their congregation how those members have been shepherded and nourished and taught. See, again, there really can't be any such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Uh, Christians are children of God, but no Christian should think of himself as an only child. You are part of a family. You have siblings, and we call that family the church. The Bible just seems to take for granted that salvation and the church are very closely connected, not absolutely identical, obviously, but very closely linked. And so, for example, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter preached his sermon and people were cut to the heart and they repented and were baptized, we read at the end of that chapter, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There was a number, a certain number of church members, and they were tracking it. And these souls were added, these who were baptized that day, were added to the church. And they were tracking that sort of thing. In fact, it's interesting in the book of Acts that it keeps giving us the number of disciples. You've got 3,000 in Acts chapter 2, then it's 5,000 in Acts chapter 6. If they can give these numbers, that means they've got some kind of membership record. There are other places in the New Testament that clearly presuppose some kind of church membership. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul makes a distinction between those who are inside and outside the church, which you can only do if there is some kind of defined membership for the church. When it comes time to choose officers in the church, in Acts chapter 6, and in other places, congregations are told choose from among your own number officers, men who fear God and fulfill these other qualifications. Well, that means that who's doing the choosing, that has to be defined, and who may be chosen, that has to be uh, defined as well. That whole process assumes some kind of membership The church discipline process that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18, which we read this morning, again, presupposes some kind of church membership. You cannot be excommunicated, which is where that process ends for someone who is in rebellion, who is unrepentant. You cannot be excommunicated unless you have previously been incommunicated. Who are the proper subjects of church discipline? Church discipline draws a line between the church and the world. Again, you have to know who's in and who's out. Now, I could keep going with examples of this kind of thing. Uh, I will grant the fact that there is no command uh, in the scripture that says, thou shalt join a church. And I think if you consider the historical situation, it's easy to understand why there is no such command. But everything we know about New Testament church life presupposes some concept of membership, some concept of belonging to a particular local congregation. Uh, The great uh, Baptist Preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Christians are sheep, therefore we belong in flocks with shepherds. Thus, he said, it is a plain duty that every Christian should be joined to some visible church. I think he's right about that. Uh, I think he's right in saying that. I will also admit to you, of course, that church life is often difficult. Difficult. Church life is often a struggle. Church can be a very difficult place for people for a wide variety of reasons, and some people may be hesitant to join a particular church uh, because of certain things that have happened in the past or things that they have seen happen, and I get that. I I like what Eugene Peterson said. Eugene Peterson said the church is equal part mystery and mess. (laughs) The church is a mystery, yes, a mystery of God, but also a mess. Peterson says, There's nobody who does not have problems with the church because there is sin in the church, but there's no other place to be a Christian. And he's exactly right about that. In fact, he goes on, he says, Every congregation is a congregation of sinners, and as if that wasn't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. (laughs) So not only is everybody in the congregation a sinner, and you know it can happen when a bunch of sinners get together, but the pastor's a sinner. The elders are sinners. We're all sinners. And so, of course, church life can be hard. Of course, it's messy and difficult at times. The church fathers had a, had a way of responding to this. The church fathers compared the church to Noah's Ark, which I think is a very biblical comparison. And the church fathers said, the church is like Noah's Ark. It may stink on the inside, but it sure beats drowning on the outside. And it would seem that those are your choices. It just makes no sense to say you are united to Christ unless you're also united to his body. Again, there can be no such thing as a churchless Christian. The church is the engine that drives and powers the whole Christian life. The Christian life is an ecclesial life. I say that from the Greek word ekklesia. That's the word that's translated as church. The Christian life is an ecclesial life. It is a churchly life. And you can't just say, well, I'm a part of the invisible church. I'll grant that there is a, a concept of the invisible church that we can tease that out and make some sense out of it. But the whole Bible describes the importance of being identified with a tangible, visible community of people that has elders and that has members, and we have certain obligations to one another within that body, within that visible community. An invisible church can make no claim on me. It is the visible church that is called the body of Christ in the New Testament. And again, it makes no sense to say you're joined to Christ the head if you're not a part of his body. The church fathers had a saying, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. In the 16th century, uh, reformers certainly agreed with that notion. John Calvin and Martin Luther both quote that. In fact, this is what John Calvin has to say about it. It's very good. This is at the beginning of book four of his Institutes that I made reference to last week. This is what Calvin says about the church as our Mother. He says, because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, let us learn from that simple title, mother, how useful, indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, and nourish us under her care and guidance. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been her pupils all our lives. says to be a Christian, you must know the church as your mother and be cared for her the whole course of your life. You never outgrow your need for the church. When he says there's no other way to enter into life but through mother church, he's referring to baptism. That's how she gives birth to us when he says that we must be nourished by our mother and, and, and under her care and guidance. He's talking about the preaching of the word and he's talking about the administration of the Lord's table. These are ways that God nourishes and feeds his people through his church, through mother church. This is how our very own Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. This is the great Presbyterian Confession of Faith, chapter 25, the visible church. Note that the visible church consists of of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is, this is how they define the visible church, it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Of that word ordinary, so we can certainly come up with exceptions, special cases, uh, extraordinary situations. But they say there's no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the church, outside of the visible church. Now, believing that no doubt makes you a high churchman. But I like that old saying, a high churchman is someone with a high view of the church and a low view of himself, and a low churchman is someone with a low view of the church and a high view of himself. I think that's often the case. As our view of the church is raised, our view of ourselves, we're, we're humbled. Because we see our need for the church and what it means to be a part of the church. Why is the church so crucial, so central, so vital, so necessary? It's certainly not because of any intrinsic power in the church as an institution. Certainly no intrinsic power in the pastors or the other officers of the church. The church is so crucial and so central because the church is not a merely human organization. It is not a merely human institution. The church is so vital and necessary because of what the church is. Consider the way the church is described in the New Testament, the kinds of images and metaphors and symbols that are used. The church is the body and bride of Christ. The church is the temple and house of God. The church is the army of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Israel, the mother of God's people, the elect of God, the communion of the saints. Those are very lofty images and descriptions for the church. Many people will criticize and complain about the church. And I just want to say, when you criticize the church, remember that is Jesus' bride you're talking. That is Jesus' life you're talking about. Now, that's not to say that the church is above criticism. The church has not yet been fully glorified and beautified. She still has spots and wrinkles, certainly at this point in history. As I already said, the church is a mess. The church is full of sin because the church is full of sinners. So yes, there are things to criticize. But I think we need to be very careful and hold the church in high regard at all times. A lot of people approach the church as religious consumers. We take our consumer-oriented way of life in America, and we apply that to religion, we apply that to church, and so people even talk about church shopping, and when people go church shopping, just like any other kind of shopping, they want the best deal. And so they choose a church based not on how biblical its teaching and worship are or how faithful the community is to love and serve biblically, They view their church membership really as no different than their Sam's membership. And if you're a Sam's member and you get a better deal at Costco, then you leave Sam's behind and you switch over to Costco. That's so much the worse for Sam. And again, that's how a lot of people view church life and church membership, their commitment to a church. They're not looking for the best place to grow, but they just want to have their ears Tickled, and so they don't go where they can best serve. Rather, they go where they can best be served by others. They're, they're, they're looking for a cruise ship. It's like if the church is a, is a ship, they're looking for a cruise ship to entertain them, not a battleship that's sailing out to go to war with Satan. Understand the purpose of the church is to gather and mature the people of God. The purpose of the church is to gather and perfect God's people. The purpose of the church is to baptize and disciple the nations and to offer God worship that is worthy of his majesty. That's the point of the church. And particular churches should always be evaluated according to those criteria. Church is not optional. The Christian life, again, is a churchly life, a life lived in the context of, of the local church. Again, church life can be really, really hard. I get that. Everybody that. But there's no other place to be a Christian except within the church. Now, I think this is rather obvious, but I also think a lot of people refuse to admit it or refuse to see it. Let me give you a rather extreme example of this. This is Jen Hatmaker. Uh, Jen Hatmaker was a rather well-known Christian author, and I guess you could say semi-celebrity. She wrote a lot of Christian Uh, supposedly Christian books for Christian women. I think she would still claim to be a Christian. But she has left the church. She has adopted all kinds of progressive views. But listen to what she says about the church, because I think this captures the way so many Americans think about the church. This is what she says. She says, I haven't attended church in six months, maybe longer. She says, there's a new side of Jesus I'm figuring out, the one who loves me in shattered places, the one who understands the sanctuary ghosts and lets me watch CBS Sunday morning instead of going to church without shame. Church, to me, right now, feels like my best friends, my porch bed, my children, my parents and siblings. It feels like my kitchen and my table. It feels like Jesus, who never asks me to meet him anywhere but in my heart. I can tell you that the Jesus that Jen Hatmaker meets in her heart is a Jesus of her own making. The only thing Jen Hatmaker worships in the church of her heart is Jen Hatmaker. I can assure you of that. But the sentiment that religion is just a matter of feelings and I can make it be whatever I want, that is so, so common. No, your feelings do not determine what the church is. The church is not something that just exists in your heart or in your head. You cannot make church into whatever you want it to be. The church is what God says it is. The church is what God makes it to be. Again, it is an objective, visible reality in the world, in history, that believers are expected to be a part of. The church is God's instrument of salvation. This is where we come to meet with God, to find God's gifts. If you're seeking God, this is the place to be among his people, where his word and his sacraments are present. Baptism is God's work, washing us in the blood of Christ and pouring out his spirit on us. Preaching is God's living and active voice, speaking to us from heaven, calling on us to trust and obey him because of who he is and what he's done, imparting his heavenly wisdom to us. The Lord's Supper is God feeding us and strengthening us as he renews his covenant with us and as we commune with Jesus and with one another through bread and wine. The church is God's house. He lives here. He meets with us here when we gather as his people. This is where you come to meet with God because this is where God has promised to be found. This is where God has promised to place his gifts. This is how Martin Luther put it. Therefore, he who would find Christ must, first of all, find the church. How would one know where Christ and his faith were if one did not know where his believers are? Luther is saying here, Christ will be among his people, those who trust in him. And he who would know something of Christ must not trust himself or build his own bridges into heaven through his own reason, but he must go to the church, visit, and ask of the same. For outside of the church is no truth, no Christ, No salvation. Obviously, the church often gets it wrong, but when it gets it right, Luther is right on target. This is what the church is to be. This is what God declares his church to be. This is why we seek God in the assembly of his people. Not that God's not at work in other places and other times, but this is the place chiefly where God has promised to make himself present and available, clothed in the grace of the gospel. The church Catholic or the church universal assembles in local bodies. And those local bodies are places, as Jesus says in Matthew 18, wherever two or three are gathered, there I will be among them. Wherever God's people gather, wherever people gather in the name of Christ to hear his word and to worship him, there he is present. It's like having the Shekinah glory. In the Old Covenant Temple, it's like having the Shekinah glory right in your midst. The local church is God's chosen instrument for announcing and applying the gospel. The local church is God's chosen means for cultural transformation. Gatherings like this when you are in, this very morning are life changing and world changing because God is here and he is at work. God is here, God is present among us to work and to give and to bless and to forgive and to mature and to transform and to answer the corporate cries of his people. Now this passage we read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2 is undoubtedly one of the deepest and fullest descriptions that we have of the church in the New Testament. And I want to encourage you this morning by unpacking a few of Peter's images to help you understand what the church is, I could say, yes, but to help you understand who you are. Because when Peter describes the church this way, he's talking about you. He's talking about this congregation and other congregations like this. When he's talking about us, this is what God has to say about us in his word. And you've got a veritable kaleidoscope of images for the church here. We'll, we won't look at all of them, but we'll look at a few of them. It's interesting to note that they are all drawn from Old Testament descriptions of Israel. As if to say, all that God promised to Israel has now been brought to fulfillment through Christ in his church. And so in verses 4 and 5, Peter says we are living stones in a house God is Building. Now, if God dwells in a building, if God dwells in a house, we call that house a temple. And so here we are, God's temple. The place where God dwells now is his people. Compare that to what we saw last week where God opens his heavenly house for us and we enter into the heavenly temple in worship. The book of Revelation, in fact, takes that one step further and says God himself is a temple for his people. And so we can say this. We are a temple for God, and God is a temple for us. We dwell in God, and God dwells in us. And that's a glorious thing. That's an amazing description of what it means to be the church. Peter says we are living stones. We're not bricks, where we're all, we would all be just alike, because with bricks, that's generally what it is. All the bricks are just the same. No, we're stones, and every stone is different. So there is diversity here, but there's also Unity. Because the stones, obviously, are mortared together into a structure. And so this is really a beautiful picture of what it means to be the church, of the church's community. Uh, Much like Paul calling the church one body with many members, so you have it here. There's one building with many living stones. There is unity and diversity. And of course, in talking about stones, Peter moves from that to talk about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, the foundation on which the whole structure rests. As Peter describes it here, there is this great construction project underway, but the builders reject a stone. That's Jesus, obviously. And then God takes that stone. God sees it as a precious stone, the stone they have rejected. God takes that stone and makes it the chief cornerstone in his construction project. And then those builders stumble over it to their own destruction. While by contrast, those who are built up into God's house, resting on this chief cornerstone, become part of an indestructible and eternal structure. They become part of this house God is building for himself, and they can never be put to shame. so important to see this. People either build on Christ or they will collapse. This is true of civilization. Civilizations will either be constructed on Christ or they will fall. If Christ is not the foundation of a particular civilization, that civilization will collapse. It will crumble. It's true of worldviews and philosophies. If they're not built on Christ as the foundation, they will collapse. What Peter's saying here is that you must build on Jesus. And the way you build on Jesus, if you want to be built on Jesus as the foundation, the chief cornerstone of your life, you got to be a part of his church. That's how you build on the foundation stone of Jesus. Peter then calls them a holy priesthood in verse five and a royal priesthood in verse nine. We are kings and priests. Of course, this goes all the way back to Adam, who was a priest in the sanctuary garden of Eden. And he was a king or at least he was a prince with the opportunity to be promoted to kingship if he was faithful and if he matured. So when Peter here describes the church as a royal priesthood, he's saying we're really a new race of Adam's and Eve. Irenaeus, the church father, called the church the renewal of the human race. We are humanity 2.0. We are God's new humanity, a new race of Adam and Eve. Later in the scripture, we see Abraham, the father of Israel, is also a priest. In fact, it's interesting, Abraham traveled around the land God promised to him. He did not possess the land. He was a sojourner and a wanderer, a pilgrim in that land. As Abraham traveled around the land God promised to him, what did he do? He built altars, places of worship, because he was a priest. And so you see, before the land, a promise could be conquered militarily. It had to be conquered liturgically. Worship always leads the way. As a priestly people, worship is the center of our lives. Everything flows out of the liturgy. We are gathered here to worship God today so that the rest of our lives can become worship as well. But worship here leads the way. Then the whole nation of Israel is declared to be a royal priesthood. Exodus nineteen six. The whole nation of Israel is called the kingdom of priests. God sets them apart as his very own people at Mount Sinai. And it's as if Peter is saying now, that mantle has been taken up by the church. We are the new Israel of God. What God purposed for Israel will be fulfilled in the church. Verse 5 says, as priests, we offer up spiritual sacrifices, not animal sacrifices like the Old Covenant priests, but spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. The the New Testament repeatedly describes our acts of worship, especially in our gathering together, our acts of worship are described in sacrificial language. so important to understand that in Scripture, priestly office is always exercised for someone else. You are not your own priest, you are a priest for others, and others will act as a priest for you. So priesthood is always on behalf of, it's always exercised on behalf of another. So Israel was a nation of priests for the sake of the world. And so, for example, at the Feast of Tabernacles in Old Covenant Israel, the nation of Israel would offer 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world. There are 70 nations listed in the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10. And so this is a way of saying Israel's a priesthood offering sacrifice for all the nations. Israel is a priest. For a nation of priests for the sake of the world. Well, within Israel, the Levites were priests for the sake of the other Israelites. The Levites were priests for the sake of the other tribes. And so they made sacrifices for the people of Israel every day, and especially on the Day of Atonement. Now, we might ask what that means for us. If we are a priesthood, today in the church, we are priests for one another and for the world. But we need to drill down deeper and ask, well, what does it mean to be a priest? What do priests do? Priests are those who serve in God's house. Priests are housekeepers of sorts. Priests are community servants. The work of new covenant priests is obviously very different from old covenant priests. But the old covenant priesthood provides the model and we can take their duties and translate them over into new covenant duties. The priests in the Old Covenant had a wide-ranging job description. They've been called the butlers, bakers, and butchers of God's house. As butlers, they guarded the house of God. And the Old Testament, priests guarded the sanctuary. Adam, as a priest, was supposed to guard Eden from the serpent. The Levites did guard duty at the tabernacle to keep unauthorized personnel out. In the New Covenant, we are called to guard the holiness of the community. And so when you join the church, you take a vow to uphold, that is, to guard the peace and the purity of the church. In that vow, you're promising to act as a priest, guarding the community, guarding the the peace and purity of the church. And the Old Covenant, priests were bakers. They baked bread as food for God and for the people. And so you could say the priest carried out a ministry of hospitality, And, of course, that is symbolized in our service today as we pass the bread to one another and as we share the cup of the Lord's Supper, but it's to carry over into how we live the rest of our lives. Priests, as housekeepers, are agents of hospitality. And then the Old Covenant, priests were butchers, killing and cutting up sacrificial animals. They offered dead sacrifices to God. Now, in the New Covenant, we take the sword of the Word, to transform one another into living sacrifices as we apply the word to one another, as we exhort one another with scripture. We are cutting up one another with the sword of the word, rearranging the pieces of one another's lives so they can be placed on the altar and offered to God as a living sacrifice. In the old covenant, priests would burn incense to send it up to the Lord. Now, in the new covenant, priests offer up prayers. The like incense, arise before the throne of the Lord as a sweet-smelling aroma. Priests are intercessors. Priests would keep the lamps burning in the tabernacle. In the New Covenant, that means we are to be the light of the world, shining the light of God's truth and love on one another, shining the light of God's truth and God's love into the world. See, our priesthood is exercised in the community of the church. It's not an individualistic thing. It is communal. You are not your own priest, we are priests for one another. If priests serve in God's house, and the church is God's house, then our priestly service is to others in the church, first and foremost. In verse 9, he calls the church a holy nation, which also comes from Exodus 19.6, and indicates the church is a new Israel. This means all of, the, uh, of Israel's blessings and privileges have been inherited By the church. Israel has been transformed into the church. Now, what does it mean to call the church a holy nation? That's kind of strange, especially for Americans, because we want to say church and state are separate, so how can the church be a holy nation, a kind of holy state? Well, it's really interesting. In various places, the church is called our nation, our city, and our family. That's something you see throughout the New Testament, that the the church is called nation, city, family. Obviously, we all belong to other nations, other cities, other families, too. And becoming a part of the church does not cancel out those other relationships or institutions, but it will transform how we live within those other relationships or institutions. So when I became a Christian, I didn't cease to be a lust, a member of my family, but how I lived out my membership in my earthly family was transformed. When you became a Christian, you did not cease to be an American. But now as a Christian, as a member of this holy nation of the church, how you live out your American citizenship is going to be transformed. What does it mean to call the church a holy nation? Well, certainly the church is a unique nation. There's no other nation like this. The church doesn't have, it's, it's not a geopolitical entity the way we think of nations. You could say, in fact, the church is a kind of international nation, a global nation, a nation that exists within and among all the other nations of the world. And it is a nation with a mission to all the other nations of the world, a nation with a mission to disciple all the other nations of the world. I'll tell you this, the church is the greatest nation on earth. The church is the greatest nation in the world. And that is because the church is not of this world. It's a nation that does not belong to or arise from this world in the same way as other nations. To describe the church as a holy nation is to say the church has a culture all all her own. Think about what it means when, when we talk about different nations, different people groups. Nations have their own stories with their own heroes and villains. Think about the American War for Independence. Nations have their own calendars to celebrate what is most important to them. Think about the 4th of July or Memorial Day. They have their own way of life. As Americans, we talk about the American dream, and we have certain buzzwords and catchphrases we use to sum up what it means to be American. Well, all of those things are true of the church. The church has her own story with her own heroes and villains. The church has her own calendar to celebrate what is most important to her. The church certainly has her own way of life. So what does it mean to be a part of this holy nation? Well, it means the Christian lives in two nations at once, and he wants the holy nation of the church to influence and disciple the earthly nation of which he is a citizen. The church is the greatest nation on earth, because it puts on the greatest show on earth, which is the liturgy. When I call liturgy a show. I don't mean it's about entertainment. You participate in it. But the church is the greatest nation on earth, and the church puts on the greatest show on earth. As we enter into heaven itself in our worship, that's what it means to be a holy nation. We're a nation with access to the most holy place. The church is a nation built on faithful worship, and thus the church is what a nation should be. And so the holy nation of the church calls on every other nation to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and to worship him. Yes, we can say in the Bible, church and state are always distinct institutions. But we can also say in the Bible, both institutions of church and state should always be obedient to Christ and should do what he commands them to do. In verse 10, Peter takes another Old Testament text, this time from Hosea 2, and he applies it to the church. God says he will take those who are not his people and he will make them his people. God says to those who are not his people, you are my people. I'm claiming you as my own. He says you had not obtained mercy, now you have obtained mercy. This could be a reference to Jews who had fallen away. It's Context from Hosea Jews who were cast into exile but who have now been regathered and returned to the Lord. Or it could refer to Gentiles, to pagan peoples who never knew the Lord in that way but who have now been made part of his people by coming to faith in Jesus. He calls us a people. To be a people means we belong to one another. We have a place of belonging. To be a people means disciples of Jesus share a common life. It means we have a place where we belong. And I think this is so important because one of the biggest problems in our culture today, one of the biggest problems in the American nation today is that people are not a people. The problem with America today is we're really not a people anymore. We're just disconnected, atomized individuals. And so what happens when the people of the nation, when that breaks down, well, everybody goes looking for a community to belong to. We're relational beings, we long to belong to something, have other people we connect with. And so when that sense of peoplehood is lost, what do people do? Well, this is what gives rise to identity politics. And this is what we're seeing in our nation right now. You have different identity groups, and of course, then they all clash with one another. But that's what we're seeing in our society. We're not a people as Americans. We're a bunch of voting blocks, or special interest groups or identity groups. The world categorizes people in all kinds of ways, but the world has no way to unify the categories. The answer to that kind of social breakdown, the answer to that tearing of the social fabric is the church. Because in the church, we can all be formed into one people. God is forming us into a people united by truth and love, sharing one faith, one baptism, one hope. We are a people. A people united together, the people of God. You have a place where you belong. You have a community you can identify with in the church. Finally, Peter says, we are sojourners. And pilgrim. Sometimes I think these labels give people the wrong idea. Some translations even uh, put the word exile in for pilgrim. Uh, and, and, and even the word pilgrim, I think, can be misunderstood. It makes it sound like we're just passing through this world on our way to someplace else. And so we don't have very much to do with this world. Think of pilgrim's progress. We're, we're passing on to some other place. That's our real destination. If you read this as exiles in verse 12, Uh, then you get the sense that, well, the church is always in exile. And so maybe the church is always supposed to be a tiny minority with no influence and no prospect of success. But that's not what Peter's saying here. That misreads what Peter is saying. In fact, it's just the opposite of what Peter is saying. In the Old Testament, Israel's exile was a judgment for sin. And when Israel was taken away into exile, the Israelites were enslaved, their temple was destroyed, they were put under a foreign power. That's clearly not the set of circumstances Peter is talking about here. He's saying you have a house, you are the house, and and you shouldn't think of yourself as being under a foreign power. You are your own holy nation. You're not enslaved, you've been set free and now can wage war against fleshly lusts. There's no hint of any kind of judgment here against the church when he calls them sojourners and pilgrims. The key thing here, what really unlocks this verse is to notice that way back in the book of Genesis, Abraham used that exact same terminology when he was negotiating to buy a burial plot in the promised land for Sarah. Sarah, his wife, has passed away, and then he negotiates in Genesis 23 with the Hittites to buy a burial plot because the Hittites possessed the land at this point. Abraham says to them, I am a sojourner and a pilgrim among you, and then he makes an offer to buy a burial place for his wife. But remember, in Genesis 23, God, Abraham was in the land that God had promised to his future descendants. Abraham's future family will own this land. So when Abraham goes to buy it, it's kind of a down payment. When he buries Sarah there, that's, kind of, that's looking to the future. And saying, this is going to be our land. This is going to be my family's land. Abraham is not a pilgrim in the promised land. In the sense of just passing through on his way to some other place. No, Abraham is there as a resident alien and as a future possessor. Yes, for now he sojourns there, but his posterity will possess the whole land according to God's promise. And that's how Peter wants us to view the world. The same way Abraham viewed the promised land in Genesis 23, I'm going to claim a stake in this land because I know it's going to be mine in the generations to come. It's going to be my families in the generations to come. My children are going to own this land, so I'll buy a little piece of it now as a sign of things to come. That's how we are to view this world. It's been promised to us. We may not own it all yet, but it will be ours eventually. The church will inherit the world, this world, this world renewed and glorified. That is our destiny as children of Abraham and as children of God. This world is our home. The church will dwell in this world forever and ever and ever. That's what the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth are all about. This world is our home. We're not just passing through. We're staking our claim here and now in a piece of it, with a piece of it, because the whole thing is going to be ours in the end. This is Peter's way of saying the church is destined to victory. The church is destined to inherit the world. All things are ours in Christ. This is Peter's picture of the church. The church is glorious. The church will be victorious. In and through the church, God fulfills All the promises he made to Israel, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in his people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.